again this evening as some nights ago, rather than give a prepared talk, I'd like to continue to listen to topics or questions that are important to people and see if I can find some useful way to respond or to put them together as a talk. So please feel free if you have question or topic. May I ask the same question again? Because I don't think you really touched on it. Sure. What is the connection, if any, between the mind-body machine and being mind? And isn't natural law ultimately dependent upon being mind? All right. Um, a lot of times during the meta meditation and other things, uh, you say, may I be liberated and may all beings be liberated. It's, it's a nice, uh, I mean, it feels good to say it, but I, I, I don't really have a feeling of what liberated means. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so question about body-mind and big mind, the question about doing loving-kindness, may I be liberated, may all beings be liberated, and what does that mean, how, how to make sense of that? Is there a difference between a vow and intention? Could you say something about the place of making vows in the practice? The difference between a vow and intention and, and the place of making vows in practice. Is it only called insight when it's insight into the three characteristics? Or can we have sort of little insights all along the way? <laughs> and um, the third thing I'd like to know about is the Vipassana tradition. Did it start in the Buddha's time? Um, was some emphasis at that time put on the Satipatthana Sutta? And uh, what's happening in that tradition these days is this. Is this sort of thing happening elsewhere, or is this, is this getting involved? Is this something? Has this been invented for the um, American palette? Has this been? Has it been altered and adapted to become palatable for America? Watered down, as they say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Um, I've heard a lot said about pain as a very um, powerful object, or a means of gaining enlightenment because it concentrates the mind. And I've heard very little mention in relation to childhood, women bearing children, and it seems like actually this question is two parts. Um, it seems like to that life, that passage um, for a woman who's trained her mind might be a context 
in which that opening could happen, it would also be a very useful thing to prepare for the next step of this reading time. And I also wonder, you know, as Stephen Levine kind of works with dying people, whether there's, oh, and he draws on the text, as I understand the tradition of death and dying in meditation, maybe there's something similar happening with So a question about, first the question about what is meditation and are we doing it? Does it get us anywhere? What does insight mean in, and what is the Vipassana tradition? Um, and is, it, is this related to the Buddhist time or is it a watered down version? And then the question about the relationship of working with pain and the practice to childbirth. Just a couple, couple or a few more brief ones, please. This is in line with the Vipassana tradition. Why did I read somewhere about something called the New Tangled Ring, the New School? Why, um, what is the meaning of the newfangled Rangoon School, and is this it? <laughs> All right, Eric, please. Um, you're fond of uh, quoting Suzuki Roshi uh, uh, using the term uh, suffering Buddha. Could you explain that term? Suffering Buddha. All right. Please. Could you explain what it means to do something with totality? To do something with totality. All right, last, last one. Sure. Devotional ritual and ceremony, what it means to do something with totality, suffering Buddha, birth and pain and putting them together in a conscious way. Um, what is meditation? What is the Vipassana tradition? What is insight? What does this have to do with Rangoon? And <laughs> And how do we fit it into the mechanical body-mind or the big mind? <laughs> and uh, if we want all beings to be liberated and we're not liberated, what are we asking for? <laughs> I make no promises that the questions asked will be answered but at least they suggest some directions. And I think we'll have some, I may do this a couple more times in my senses, perhaps either in question-answer sessions or in a similar format that some of the other teachers may also respond to such things. So if, they, if they're not answered, it doesn't mean that they won't be. like to save the question of suffering Buddha and grace or totality of devotion and working with pain for a moment to the second part of this answer and start more directly with the questions of what is meditation and what is insight and what is the basis of this tradition. 
When someone asks, what is meditation? How would you answer? You've now spent three weeks or longer. Many of you have spent many more weeks in meditation retreats. I want you to sit just for a moment quietly for yourself and in just a sentence or two. What is meditation? What is the heart of meditation? And in that question, you'll discover that you also have to ask yourself then, what am I doing here? You can ask it in a humorous way or a, a deeper way than that. What is meditation and what is my purpose for this long retreat, for this time? Or perhaps what do I really care about? There are so many answers to the question of what is meditation, and I don't want to give you one that you can put into the files and regurgitate when someone asks you when you leave, or even use to satisfy that that itching or curiosity or aching to know in yourself. Perhaps the thing that you come here to discover is the answer to that question, what is meditation? What is insight? What can we know about our own bodies, our hearts, our minds? What a wonderful thing to begin to try to discover. Most of the world is caught in endless cycles called samsara, of grasping, of desire, of gaining, of trying to get and be and become. Power, sex, money, security, pleasure, fame. And very few people among humanity anyway, very few beings among humans, really take the time to look at the whole cycle of being born, growing up, having this life to work with, having it slip away, childhood goes, adolescence goes, young adulthood goes, and really looking at it in some deep way, trying to understand it. The Buddha left home, as each of you have done to come to this retreat. For him, the question was, stimulated by the, by the sight of an old person, a sick person, a dead body, and a renunciate, a monk. He wanted to know the answer to the question of birth and death and aging and why there's suffering in the world. That was his question. I don't know what your question is. 
And so he began to meditate. And his meditation was to discover the answer, the center of that knot. What is the source of suffering in the world? What is the meaning of freedom, of liberation? That's a beginning place in meditation. Then what is insight meditation? What is vipassana? What is an insight? There are different ways of knowing. We can know through having read something. We've all read an enormous amount and have a huge library in our heads. It's a good thing that it gets stored very easily there because it would be a lot to carry around if it were in book form. It would. You know, truckloads of books. So that's one way of knowing. There's knowing from what someone who seems wise or smart or experienced tells us. You know, it's like this, brother, you better listen, because I've been there, or sister. That's a useful way of knowing. Then there's the way of knowing of our own reflection. I've been here, I've seen that, this works, that doesn't. This seems to be leading in a way of happiness. This seems to get me in trouble. From our experience, based on our thought primarily, our observation and our reflection, there's a tremendous amount that can be known in the domain of thought. But what happens when we begin to ask questions like, what is consciousness? this thing we take for granted that knows, or hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, that, that is, that is our, our life. What is that? What is the mind? What in our minds creates suffering for us? What is it like when there isn't suffering, when there's joy or Freedom, what is that? What can we rest on? Where can we find security? What is the relationship between this physical body and this mind we have? What's love? How do we open our hearts? How do you answer those kind of questions? You can read good things and get inspired and kind of remember, yes, Krishnamurti or the Buddha or someone wonderful said something and you get inspired, but it's secondhand. Or you can have someone tell you that's even more convincing. It's this way, friend, listen. Sounds pretty good. Or you can think about it. Well, it seems to me this or that. But there's a whole class of these questions 
which really can't be answered by any of those levels, that are only answered by an intuitive, silent, knowing, seeing clearly. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or solution even, neither resisting nor avoiding, said Krishnamurti, it is only then that there can be a regeneration, because then the mind is capable of perceiving what is true, and it is the truth that liberates, not our efforts to be free. It is the truth, the seeing of what's true that frees us and not our efforts to be free. What an extraordinary statement. What the Buddha discovered and what has been rediscovered by each person in the lineage of Zen masters or Tibetan lamas or Theravada teachers or outside of Buddhism even by those who are wise and have understood is that there's a way to come to answer this these basic and wonderful, compelling and and difficult questions about the mind and body. And that way is first based on bringing our life into harmony in the world. That's called sila, being honest with our words and kind with our action. It allows us to come to some harmonious rest. And second, samadhi. And what samadhi means simply is stopping being caught just in the level of thought, collecting the mind, bringing the body and the mind together so we're not living in a realm of fantasy, but that we're actually here in the moment with our movements, our sound, our sight, our smell, our thoughts. If we want to know about them, being with them. As I said earlier on in the retreat, from that sign in Las Vegas, you must be present to win. You have to learn how to be here. So the second is samadhi. And samadhi simply means a letting go of fantasy and a collecting of the resource of our attention and the focusedness of mind to see. It takes some practice. It doesn't happen overnight, you may have noticed. A good image for the development of samadhi is that of grinding a lens. Sometimes people will come into an interview and they'll say, well, I'm getting kind of quiet and I can sit comfortably and nothing's happening. Is this it? I mean, where is the insight? If your lens is ground a little bit and you're looking for microbes or the walls of cells or the genes or all the things that make it work, you can't see it yet. It's still kind of blurry. When the mind becomes powerfully collected and still and present, then that can be used to begin to observe and to look silently at that which is true. This process of collecting or concentrating the mind and the attention and then training it on our very experience, the world, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and mind, thoughts, and feelings, the knowing of them, the six senses in the knowing. This is the heart of the Buddha's awakening and the heart of what he transmitted. He sat, 
and he looked. And the Vipassana tradition, which is found in a different form in Zen or in Tibetan and Vajrayana Buddhism, all of it, all these different forms in Rangoon or Thai or, or Tibetan or Tokyo style, if they're genuine, they're all involved in this one single, simple, direct quest to collect the body and mind on a basis of harmonious action to become concentrated and still and to see directly and deeply what is true. If a person gives way to all their desires or panders to them, there will be no inner struggle in them, no friction, no fire. But if for the sake of attaining liberation, they struggle with the habits that hinder them and catch them up, they will create a fire which will gradually transform their inner world into a single whole. This is George Gurdjieff speaking. What's necessary to collect or concentrate is to let go again and again, moment after moment, of past, of future, of being caught by this and caught by that, to come back here again and again. And through this power of mindfulness, making the mind and body come together, or satipatthana, the path of mindfulness. Sati is mindful, and patana is the path. Through using this, one then comes to the third element of the awakening of the Buddha and of this inheritance that we have, which is that of wisdom or insight. we start to see that which everyone else running around can't see, doesn't see, is too busy to see, doesn't want to see, is scared to see, doesn't care about seeing. So what do we see? What is this wisdom? I'll suggest some things. I don't want to tell you, and even if I do, please don't believe it. Look and see for yourself. Question about the totality. We start to see what it's like to drink a cup of tea and be completely there drinking a cup of tea, or to be drinking a cup of tea and thinking about five other things to take a walk in the woods and be there, or to take a walk in the woods and spend most of our time thinking about Coney Island or San Francisco or writing a book. Start to see the difference between living more in the moment with the body and mind together versus living in our fantasy. Why should we live in the moment? Does anyone know? Why bother? It hurts sometimes, you know, doesn't it? It's not even fun here sometimes. Why do it? Why live in the moment? I'll suggest one thing, but there are three or four very important reasons. You see if you can supply the others. Most of us want to love and be loved, don't we? 
really matters a lot. You can't love and be loved in fantasy. You can only love someone when you're genuinely there with them. You can only be touched by love in the moment. Some of us want to discover things about birth, death, body, mind. Where can you find them out? Where can you answer these questions of the heart, these most compelling questions? So one of the first things of wisdom is beginning to discover what it means to live in the moment. What a powerful thing that is, to live in the moment. If we do something very terrible and awful and difficult happens, That's the next question that was asked about Suzuki Roshi and suffering Buddha. If we live in the moment, it requires that we see and accept the world as it is and not as we would like it to be. That we come here over and over and over again and we see that it is a world of birth and death, of up and down, of light and dark, of pleasure and pain and pain and pleasure and pleasure and pain and pain and pleasure and pleasure and pain and pain and pleasure, rotating pain and pleasure and pleasure and pain. Do you hear that? (laughs) Do you get it? That it's a world of light and dark and dark and light and pleasure and pain. To live in the moment with the eyes and the heart of a Buddha is to see the substance of what makes up our life. Seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, and mental states, the six objects, and see that they play through pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, and unpleasant. To see it really truthfully not to judge it, not to resist it, or to resist it and notice the resistance playing through and the judgment playing through, to see it as it is. Then the mind is capable of perceiving that which is true, and it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. Imagine if you really look and you say, yes, This is how it is, even if everyone else is running around hoping that somehow they can make it always pleasant, or at least maybe 60-40, you know. (laughs) And you look at it and you say, what is it? It's this. And then you look deeper and you say, well, what am I in this? This is another question you start to look at. You begin to see first that suffering Buddha is the prerequisite for living in the moment. It's, there's a beautiful Zen phrase of sun Buddha and moon Buddha. Buddha meaning each one of us who lives, who comes back to that inherit, inheritance of living in the moment. This is what we inherit, this moment and the next and the next. And to be a Buddha means to to open to our inheritance and to look in it and say, hmm, 
gold and shit, you know, <laughs> or life and death, that they're both in it. That's what we inherit. And to say yes to it, to say yes, that didn't get on the tape, did it? <laughs> It's all right with me. To say yes to our experience. To say yes to the, to the humor of life. I'm, it is funny. It's ridiculous. It's wonderful. And to say yes to the sorrow of it. There's a, there's a, a, fr- a small saying that Oscar Wilde wrote while he was imprisoned the turn of the century for for being a homosexual. At the turn of the century, at least they just threw them in prison. In certain previous years, people were burned for it. And he wrote from prison, he said, the trouble with prison is not that it breaks one's heart. Dash. Hearts are meant to be broken. Dash but that the walls of stone of the prison turn the heart also into stone. Hearts are meant to be broken, which means to say to open the heart. And if we look at practice, it's an opening of the mind, of the body, and of the heart, what suffering Buddha is. It means to acknowledge sorrow and joy. And to be able to be so open to that, that one sees it, can play in it, experiences it without resistance. That brings one to what is called a heart of greatness. It brings one to the eyes of wisdom. And then in any realm it's applicable when you're dealing with women in childbirth, it's agony. It's one of the greatest physical, painful things that women have to experience. And it's tremendously painful for the child, if you really look. Or you imagine being for four or five or ten or twenty hours being compressed in, in a tiny space and being unable to move. Mostly we don't think about what it's like to be born, but you can go back in deep memory and discover it. There's agony and there's tremendous ecstasy of the the process of life giving birth to life. One has to come in oneself to an openness that sees what is true and then can bring that to birth, to death, with a an open heart with a kind of dignity and a fearlessness and a seeing, a seeing of pleasure and pain, a seeing of impermanence, that nothing lasts, nothing, not a single thing lasts. One thing arises dependent on another. Dependent on that, the next arises. Many different aspects to insight or wisdom. All of them learn by being in the moment. 
by collecting the mind or grinding the lens of consciousness and concentration until we can actually see we're not so scattered or lost. Where does ritual and devotion, faith, fit into this? When I think about the fruit of these retreats, these long retreats, or even the short ones, one reflection that I do that's wonderful for me is to think about all of you at the time of your death. For some it might be many years away. For some of you it might be in a few years. For some it might be sooner. And to realize that part of the power of that which we do is a willingness to enter into this realm of birth and death and to learn a kind of strength as we sit here for this week or this month or these three months of balance of mind, of openness of heart, to greet every experience, including the death of those we love and our own death, with wisdom, kindness, and a deep, sense of of acceptance, of honesty. To me, there's something deeply inspirational to realize that as we sit here today, last night or the night before was the full moon, and in the Buddhist tradition, the full moon in October, is the end of the three-month rains retreat. And that still today in Southeast Asia there are 300,000 monks and nuns, all of whom participated in a three-month retreat that ended yesterday. And that in ancient China and in ancient Egypt, India, In every culture there have been people who wanted to understand birth and death, who wanted to know about the opening of the eye of wisdom and the heart of compassion, who've been willing to stop and see and look and listen. To me there's a beautiful quality of connectedness with all beings of the Sangha, which is part of the answer to the question of devotion, of feeling that we're connected with that. And another part of devotion is discovering that mindfulness itself is a kind of gratitude or gratefulness. When you use water or you take food or you you do what interact with someone, to be aware, to live fully in the moment is to become 
alive and sensitive to that moment. What a wonderful thing to do with our life. And there are lots of other wonderful things, but what a fantastic way to live it. And the last, perhaps, As we become silent and look at what's true rather than what we'd like or what we've been told and open to it in the mind, in the heart, and collect ourselves to be here more and more again and again until we come to some perfect kind of inner balance, of perfect presence, In that perfect balance, what happens is that the sense of grasping and resisting disappears. You know that already. You can feel that as you sit. There's less grasping and less resistance, more here. With the disappearance of the sense of grasping and resisting, also what disappears is the sense of I. I want this, I need that. And there becomes a spontaneous seeing of the inherent selflessness and suchness of this world. I won't explain that word, suchness. It's something for you to to feel or sense or discover, not by your thought. And out of that perfect balance and that sense of the selfless suchness it becomes possible to come to that kind of freedom which is quite beyond the birth and death of this limited body or these limited thoughts in our mind. Truth is perfect and complete in itself, says Dogen Zenji. It is not something newly discovered. It has always existed. Truth is not far away. It is nearer than near. There is no need to grasp it, since not one of your steps leads away from it. Don't follow the advice of others. Rather, learn to listen to the voice within yourself. Your body and mind will become clear and you will realize for yourself the unity and truth of all things. There have been thousands upon thousands of students who have practiced meditation and obtained its fruits. Don't doubt its possibilities because of the simplicity of the method. If you can't find the truth right where you are, where else do you think you will find it? Life is short and no one knows what the next moment will bring. Cultivate your mind while you still have the opportunity. Live in the moment. 
you will soon discover the treasure of wisdom, which in turn you can share abundantly with others, bringing it in turn to the whole of the world. Eighth century Japan, it's the same message. This week has felt, as we do it, sitting here together or for those in their rooms practicing, I know difficult the first few days, and now again it feels like it's settling in in an even more deeper level. Please, it's wonderful. It feels great to me and It's a very powerful thing we do. Honor it, work with continuity, learn to live in the moment and see it as directly and clearly as you can. Thank you. As I sense the energy sitting here, um, I sense two kinds of energy. One is an energy from almost everyone of a tremendous sincerity that people have worked very hard now for um, six weeks and there is both a stillness and a kind of caring that I felt from almost everyone about practice and I don't even like to use that word about truth about themselves about being aware of the body the breath the feelings the mind with all the resistances and all the struggles and the difficulties, notwithstanding a a tremendous sincerity. I'm also aware that there is about a month left of real silence before we come to the integration period in the retreat. And I feel, feel two kinds of energies relating to that. One is one of still very sincerely wanting to be here, be in the moment, to uncover, discover what can be seen in a moment-to-moment attention. And the other is some tendrils of, of questions and interest of, well, what am I going to do when it's done? Or how am I going to relate to it when I leave in the world or relationship or other kinds of things? Um, how I've been here now for more than half of it. You know, is this? I, maybe this is what I get from it, what I've got so far. And how am I going to fit it in? I want to talk about two different qualities and then maybe somehow we'll touch on the topics that were mentioned. The first is balance and the second is death. Do you remember the sutra on the refinement of gold that I read at the end of a talk a couple of weeks ago, purifying the mind? There's a second part to that sutra. A monk or nun devoted to higher mental training should from time to time give attention to three items. 
they should from time to time pay attention to the item of concentration, from time to time to the item of energetic effort, and from time to time the quality of equanimity. If they give exclusive attention to concentration, it's possible that the mind will fall into sleep or indolence. If they give exclusive attention to energetic effort, it's possible that the mind may fall into restlessness. If they give exclusive attention to equanimity, it's possible that the mind will not be well concentrated and not see clearly the roots of attachments. But if from time to time giving attention to each of these three qualities, the mind will become pliant, workable, lucid, not unwieldy. Supposing a goldsmith builds a furnace and lights a fire, takes the gold with a pair of tongs and puts it into the furnace. From time to time he blows on it. From time to time he sprinkles water on it. From time to time he examines it closely. If he were to blow too much, it might be heated beyond its, its ability. If he were to continuously sprinkle water on it, it would be too cooled. If he were only to look at it, the gold would not come to perfect refinement. But if from time to time the goldsmith attends to each of these three functions, the gold will become pliant, workable, bright. It can easily be molded, and whatever ornament, earrings, necklace, golden chain, the gold can now be used for any purpose whatsoever. Similarly, For a monk or nun in training, those three items or three qualities should be attended to from time to time. Concentration, energetic effort, and equanimity. In doing so, the mind will become pliant, workable, lucid, not unwieldy. And then to whatever mental state or understanding is realizable, When they direct their mind in that very moment, they achieve the capacity of realizing and seeing with clarity and wisdom. A great part of the path of practice for us is of the nature of balancing. Sometimes you notice the mind is restless, and what's needed is a balancing, a spaciousness, a relaxing. Sometimes you notice that there's too much striving of energetic effort, there's a softening. Sometimes you notice that things are too relaxed or too sleepy. What's required then is a careful and precise attention, brings more energy to the practice. I see the issue of balance 
as being a central one to our independence in practice. Much of what goes on in an interview, one aspect of it, is to listen and feel where people are out of balance and to respond to that, to say, sit more or walk more or sleep less or sleep more or slow down or speed up or relax, don't be so tight. So then I would ask you a question. For your practice today, as a goldsmith refining a pure and clear and lucid mind and heart, what was out of balance? Too much energetic effort? Too much indolence? too much relaxation. Too much concentration. Can you begin to feel and sense in yourself that quality of balance? I think you can if you start to look at it. I think you can feel in sitting, or a day, what's unbalanced. And part of what makes meditation a kind of a discovery and an art is that no one can give you a precise prescription. Sit this many minutes, walk this much, follow your breath exactly this way. But that each one of us, given this silence and our sincerity and the circumstances, has to sit and feel in our own hearts and our body, what is that balance? Now, how does death relate to this? I want to move to that right away. I was given a poem today, actually. It's a love poem by Robert Graves called Pure Death. He says, we looked, we loved, and therewith instantly death became terrible to you and me. By love we disenthralled our natural terror from every comfortable philosopher or tall gray doctor of divinity. Death stood at last in his true rank and order. It happened soon, so wild of heart were we. Exchange of gifts grew to a malady. Their worth rose always higher on each side, till there seemed nothing but ungivable pride that yet remained ungiven. And this degree called a conclusion not to be denied. Then we at last bethought ourselves, made shift, and simultaneously this final gift gave. Each with shaking hands unlocks the long brass-bound coffin box, unwraps pure death with such bewilderment as greeted our love's first acknowledgement. Kind of a strange poem, yes? 
there's a connection or a kind of balance, if you will, between balance itself, between doing our practice in a systematic and natural way, feeling when we're out of balance, coming back to the center, feeling grasping or aversion, coming back again to the moment, to mindfulness. There's that whole side to practice. Nourish it, understand it, look at it, value it. The other side of practice, the other side of some greater balance, is that of death. To love in some way very fully, the poem says, requires that we die, requires that we let go of everything else into that love. To drink a cup of tea very fully requires that we die to the past, to the future, to our imaginings. To have a relationship or to deal with any of the things in the world in the fullest way somehow requires of us that we learn this capacity to unwrap that box, to see death directly in its true rank and order. And so I see us doing two things here. One is learning balance. And I ask you, as the sutra does, to pay attention to the gold of your heart and your mind and see when it's tight and soften it and when it's too soft and and straighten it. To learn that balance when it's caught and makes space around it. And the other is we're learning our one death perfectly over and over again. Every time we stand every time we sit, every time we walk or take tea, all the kinds of resistances that come, all the kinds of fear, each time is a moment that says, can you let go of the past? Can you let go of the future? Can you die to really our imagination? That's what past and future are, if you look. And can you come to live so fully in this moment? Can you make your life one moment of dying and being born after another? Now it touches on the topics that were asked. What is grace? I really feel like we've been learning about grace to sit here with the kind of heart and endeavor, sit and we walk, and we let what comes come, and open to it and listen to it with awareness, is grace. Grace in the sense that that which teaches us is not what we want or hope or imagine, or even the most noble philosophy we know, but is the moment-to-moment experience 
of body, of mind arising and passing, of greed, of hatred, of fear, of anger, of love, of joy, of equanimity. And I see the practice of awareness as really being a practice of surrender. You want to surrender to God? Wonderful. God has made peppermint tea today, or God has put out apples or bananas, you know, or, or cauliflower casserole, or God has created the person sniffling next to you, you know, or God has created the tension in your body, or God has created the kinds of fears that arise. There's a beautiful spirit in practice of opening, of surrender to that which is. And for me, Joseph's going to speak on the whole range of the spirit of renunciation. There are a lot of levels of renunciation, but the deepest one is the renunciation of past and future, of our hopes. God, we have to give up our hopes. Can you imagine? You have to give up your hopes. What would you have to give up if you really gave your hopes up? Take a look and see. To learn to give up all those things which are really thoughts, imaginings, in order to come to live absolutely in the moment. That's a kind of renunciation that's the deepest level of it. Now, it was asked if we're born with greed, hatred, and delusion, or if we learn it. Have any of you ever watched an infant? Most of you have, huh? Does it have greed? Does it have hatred? Does it have delusion? In its sweet, innocent way. It's pretty clear. I want my bottle, or no, or go away, or this is hurting me. Or delusion, heavy on the delusion, actually. (laughs) I don't want to be too pious tonight, either. All right, it's pretty clear, if you look at an infant, that it's there. In fact, someone once asked a, a great Buddhist teacher, what was it that was reborn? And their reply was, these three propensities themselves. You can look into that yourself. But in any case, yet there's a strange thing, and this is a way of starting to tie it together. Do infants live in the moment? They seem to mostly. They don't seem to have a lot of worries about the insurance or (laughs) paying the bills or anything like that. doesn't seem a lot of thought going on there. All right, so there must be something more to this than just living in the moment. What's the difference? 
What's the difference? Can you figure it out? Do you see? What's the difference between us and a room full of infants? (laughs) One can be in the moment and relate to it in different ways. You can relate to it with balance or awareness, or you can relate to it with aggression or with grasping. And so the art of the practice is really bringing now these two sides together. One of listening, how, how is our practice working? How is balance working for us? What's off balance? Can we find a way to come back? Can we learn to live the next month really in balance and then take that out to the world? And that balance means dying to the past and future, living in the moment. And in each moment, finding that which is not greed or hatred or delusion, finding that space which is awareness of seeing what arises with a clarity, with wisdom. It's a moment-to-moment dying and a moment-to-moment balancing. Relationships and war. If he who would do good to another must do it in the minute particulars, says William Blake, general good is the plea of the scoundrel, the hypocrite, and the flatterer. If you want to love someone, want to help them grow or help yourself grow in a relationship, where does that happen? Where do you find love? Can you find it in the past? Can you find it in the future? Can you find it in imagining how you could be together? How nice it might become? We all want it so deeply, so terribly. We really want to be loved and to love. I think maybe we even want to love more than to be loved. Where can you do it? You can only do it in the moment. The rest is all your imagination. Somehow for me, the way of practice of our dying from one hour to another in our walking, in our sitting, in our eating, our our fears, our resistance, our delights, and our quietness. Somehow it's a learning first on a very small but essential scale of how what it really means to love something ourselves, our experience, 
our tea, our, our putting on our socks. Of what Don Juan says, a warrior or a man or woman of knowledge brings to the world a tenderness, a caring for each kind of thing, each moment, each encounter. And I think that's the problem with war in our world, I'm sorry to say, that it's created by the general good, by ideals rather than the particular. In speaking with Mother Teresa, these interviews that I've mentioned before, we asked her what she thought was the cause of nuclear war in the world, because it's such a terrifying and pressing problem. And she started to go on a a long talk about abortion, which is one of her very strong issues. And I said, please, Mother, you know, um, I understand that that too is very important, but how about nuclear war? And she said, they're the same. I said, what do you mean? And her explanation, it was really extraordinary. She said, the way we live in the world in modern society, we take a test tube and we make a baby in it. Or we have 10 million abortions in a country of 200 million people in a year. She said, and in our own very little families, with the people next door, with our own wife, with our own daughter, with our own girlfriend, with our own husband, with our own family. We've forgotten how precious life is. We think we can make it and dispose of it, and that it's all just a part of this kind of materialistic world. We've forgotten the meaning of of love, of caring for that which is minute, which is particular, which is part of our closest experience. She said, and until we can find that love in the person next door to us, in the person that we live with, in the child that we could bring into the world, she said, we can't find that on a global level. One who would do good to another must do it in the minute particulars And somehow what we're doing here, for me, this dying from one moment, from one hour, there's really a a tender quality, a beautiful quality too, learning how to take each moment, each thing, each thought and each feeling,
to see them for what they are, to accept them, to be aware, and to see their nature. Some nights the talks are, are entertaining, which is, which is nice, it's good. Um, sometimes they're less so. At this point, I realize as I sit that most of the things that I care about in terms of the Dharma have been said by one of us in the Dharma talk. Not to say that there won't be many more talks, there will still be, or that I've run out of words. But I have in a way tonight, maybe it's good, and not just for my benefit. But for, for everyone's sense. learning balance, learning to die. It's an amazing thing to practice, both of those things. I guess the last thing I'd say then is nourish your sincerity. It's very beautiful and it's it's brought you the fruits of your being here and your work. It's right in the middle and it's quiet in some ways, but with everyone there'll be waves of restlessness or questioning or doubt. It's fine. It's real precious, the time and the, the space. And for this, for this silent middle period, really, Listen to your heart. Find your own way and your own reason and use it, use it very well.
Thank you.